Well, Martin Luther once said that to deny the Trinity endangers your salvation, and to try to comprehend the Trinity endangers your sanity. To deny the Trinity endangers your salvation, but to try and grasp it endangers your sanity. You may be finding that to be the case with this series of sermons on the Trinity. If so, take heart. Uh, Today, beginning with our text from John 3, the gospel lesson we just read, for a few weeks, I want to look at the triune God as he's on display in his actions for your salvation. So that is, we will contemplate God not so much as he is in himself, but as he is toward us in his works. Right Early in this series, we said there's a kind of order, right? We can only know God as he is toward us. He reveals himself. He acts. And then through those acts, we can come to know him in, in himself. So that's the sort of order. God acts first. Theologians call this the economy, the, the realm in which God acts in the world. And it's the easiest place for you to see and to trace back into the being of God what God is like. So call these next few sermons, if you like, Trinitarianism Made Easier. Maybe not easy, but easier, made accessible. I wouldn't call it Trinitarianism for dummies. I would never say that about us. But I have said there are no experts here, right? Everyone's a novice here, so let's call it Trinitarianism for novices. There's a kind of floor here that we can stand on to get the basics down. Or to put it in terms of Luther's remark, right, I'm hoping that we can gain some comprehension of the Trinity, the triune God, as our Savior. We can do that and leave our sanity intact. In fact, since the Trinity is sanity, right, this is deepening and strengthening your sanity. So, I want you to take heart. This is not going to be hard. We're going to make three points. They're there on your outline. The work of the Spirit, the work of the Son, the work of the Father. The work of the Spirit, the work of the Son, the work of the Father. The text is lovely this way because it moves in the order of your experience. You may not think of it this way often, but the Holy Spirit has enabled you, if you are in Christ and a believer, right? The Holy Spirit has enabled you to see the glory of Christ crucified and through him to know the Father. So your experience moves spirit, son, father, and that's just what the text does. So first, then, the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, when you think about the text, the text text we just read from John 3, the very structure of the event is Trinitarian. You have the son standing there, talking to Nicodemus, the son sent from the father, talking to Nicodemus about the need for the gift of the Spirit. So, the first thing we'll look at then is the work of the Spirit. This is John chapter 3, verse 1. The text says, there was a man of the Pharisees, a man named Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee, which means he was Torah observant. But he was still a man. At the end of chapter 2 in John's Gospel, we're told Jesus knew what men were. He knew what they were made of, so he didn't entrust himself to men. Right? So, the end of verse 1 says he's a member of the Jewish ruling council. 
which means he probably belonged to the Sanhedrin. So he's a man of, of some public notoriety and some learning. And he comes to Jesus by night. He calls Jesus rabbi. He says, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. Well, that's probably true, although there are wonder workers that are probably not from God as well. But at least Nicodemus gets the connection. He gets the connections between the signs and Jesus' divine teaching mission. He doesn't yet grasp who Jesus is, but he's not blinded by prejudice. He seems somewhat sympathetic. Nevertheless, as this conversation unfolds, we realize he does not know what he's wading into here. For him, at least at the outset, right, this is simply a conversation between two teachers in Israel, between two rabbis. And Jesus, right, he's not much for small talk. He dispenses with the preliminaries. In verse 3, he starts with, I tell you the truth. So Nicodemus gives him a compliment. Jesus returns a solemn, authoritative declaration. This, I tell you the truth, is sometimes translated in your Bible, amen, amen, or verily, verily, in the old King James. So, conversations with Jesus are never casual chats. He's always upping the ante, turning these simple requests into moments of crisis, of personal decision. He's pressing his claims upon us. So he says solemnly, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Nicodemus didn't even ask a question about the kingdom of God. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. And born again here is the same, or it could be translated born from above. So it's critical to see that the topic is birth. Because this is a shame and honor culture, much more so than modern cultures are. And birth status, right, birth status is the single all-important factor that determines your honor and your standing in society. And Nicodemus is a man, however he was born, who's attained now the status of one who's well-born. So your social honor was derived from your status at birth, and it was simply a given, And to be born again, to be born all over again, however unthinkable like that event might be, it would alter one's status in a very fundamental way that moderns are not used to hearing. We think, oh, you just have a religious experience. That's what being born again means. You have some kind of an encounter. But in Nicodemus' world, it means I'd have a new status, a new social standing. So Jesus is going Right for the jugular. He's saying something like this. Look, look, Nicodemus, deducing that I'm a teacher from God because you see the miracles is woefully inadequate. Or or being a devout adherent of the Torah, a respected teacher yourself, is utterly impotent in the face of what man is. This is a man who comes to Jesus and he knows what men are. So now he's just putting the conversation up on the level it needs to be at. What is required, he says, is not that you acknowledge that I've done some miracles and I might be from God, but nothing 
less radical than a new birth, a birth of heavenly origin. And without such a rebirth, Nicodemus, not only can you not enter the kingdom, you can't even see the kingdom of God. And the kingdom, as we've said in here before, is the realm of God's life. The kingdom is the dynamic reign of God in the midst of his people. The Apostle Paul tells us the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the sphere, if you will, of the Holy Spirit. So, rebirth from above, that is, from the divine life itself, from God himself, from heaven, is needed to enter this kingdom. So it's a kingdom conversation. Now, on top of the difficulty with the birth imagery... Nicodemus would likely have thought of the kingdom as a future reality which all the righteous Jews would enter at the end of time. Jesus speaks of the kingdom as something you can enter right now, at hand in his life and work. So, of course, what is this, what, what's the result here? It's in verse 4. Nicodemus is bewildered. Right? You can, and you can sympathize with him. It's a bewildering encounter. It seems basic to Jesus' teaching method, at least sometimes, to disorient. It's not like Jesus doesn't know that the birth metaphor of being born from above and the kingdom metaphor are not going to confuse the guy. He knows that. So he disorients, he unnerves before eventually, in his own good time, he leads us into the truth. Remember, Nicodemus will become a disciple. So, the Lord is often speaking indirectly. Often cryptically. Why? Why does he do that? Well, it's intended to provoke us into reevaluating some of our most basic assumptions. So, Nicodemus is kind of reeling. He takes Jesus literally. He says this, how can a man be born when he is old? I mean, that's a pretty obvious question, right? You're just so used to this born again metaphor. Like all the stunning shock of the thing is worn off on us. What are you talking about born again? How can a person be born when he's old? Surely he can't enter a second time into his mother's womb, Nicodemus says. No, Nicodemus, you just walk down the aisle, you pray this prayer, and you're born again. Most of the other stuff stays the same. So the concept presented by Jesus here is so strange. As familiar as it is to you, it's so strange and so inaccessible, Nicodemus has no tools to grasp it. Maybe a convert to Judaism from paganism could be spoken of as a newborn child. But how could one born a Jew need rebirth? Especially born with, apparently, with some kind of nobility or status. So Jesus doesn't back down. In verse 5, he repeats himself, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the Spirit. Right, the parallel to this in Paul is what we heard in the New Testament lesson from Ephesians 2. You have to be quickened with Christ and raised from the dead and seated into the heavenly places. You have to undergo a spiritual resurrection. 
And the, and the question in our text, one of the big questions is, what does Jesus mean by being born of water and the Spirit? There's an age-old debate about, about this. And there are a number of possible allusions here. The water could refer to John the Baptist's baptism. John baptized a baptism of repentance in water, he said. It could be an allusion to natural birth. There's evidence that the Jews associated water with childbirth. And we still do that today. Or there could be, there probably is here, an allusion to Christian baptism, where water and the Spirit work in conjunction. But I don't think we have to choose one of these. Most likely, water and the Spirit is simply a way of of Jesus saying, you need to be cleansed or washed by the power of the Spirit from above. And the key background to get here on this ministry of the Spirit, right, it comes from Ezekiel 36. We heard that in the Old Testament lesson. Listen to the prophet Ezekiel. He says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments to do them. It is a text like that, if not that exact text, that Jesus has in the back of his mind. Ezekiel foretells the coming of the new covenant in terms of water and the spirit. The restoration of Israel means she is washed, and the law of God is inscribed into her heart by the Holy Spirit. That is what rebirth in water and by the Spirit, yields. And it's utterly necessary. There are no exceptions to this way to the kingdom, Jesus says, because he goes on to say, because what is flesh is flesh. Now, flesh can do a lot of things for you, right? It can give you good social connections, pretty good genes. You might have a good heritage. It might give you some standing. But it's still flesh. It still pertains to this passing fallen age. It cannot bring the rebirth necessary to enter the kingdom. That's what Jesus means when he says, whatever is born of flesh is flesh. But whatever is born of the spirit, he says, is spirit. Not that you become the Holy Spirit or anything like that. He's simply saying like begets like. And only the spirit, who is himself the coming and power of the new age, Only the Spirit can bring the kingdom. Right? Flesh, and by flesh, of course, John does not mean, Jesus is not meaning just this. He means the whole human person in this world as turned away from God. Flesh belongs to this age. The Spirit belongs to the age to come. The Spirit is a mighty power bringing the future into your life. The Spirit, then, is, as the Creed says, the Lord and the giver of life. He's the fountain and source of life. And what does the Creed go on to say? He proceeds from the Father and the Son. That is, the gift of the Spirit is the gift of the Trinitarian life, shared by the Father and the Son itself to you. Right? The gift of the Spirit is the gift of the Trinitarian life to you. Or another way to put this, 
the processions in the being of God become missions to the people of God. So, both the kingdom, the kingdom of God, and our entry into that kingdom, they are wholly divine achievements. Nothing is added from the human side. We see this clearly in verses 7 and 8. Jesus tells Nicodemus, you shouldn't be, mar- you shouldn't be marveling at this. You shouldn't be surprised at what I've said. And then Jesus says this, the wind blows wherever it pleases. It's a bit of a play on words, right? In Greek, the word for wind and the word for spirit are the same word. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. It's another remarkable saying. The Spirit, right, who gives us new birth into the kingdom, is, Jesus says, sovereign and free. He cannot be manipulated. He cannot be controlled. He cannot be turned into a commodity or reduced to a technique or to a formula. There's no set of steps you can follow to invoke the Spirit. The Spirit's work is hidden and mysterious like the wind. You don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. You can't chaperone it. It won't. The Holy Spirit will not give himself into your possession. Because the triune God won't give himself into our possession. But its effects are evident because he creates a people reborn by the life of God into the life of the kingdom, delivered out of the kingdom of darkness, brought into the kingdom of the sun. Nicodemus still doesn't get it. And in verse 9 he says, how can this be? How can this be? And Jesus responds, You are Israel's teacher, and you do not understand these things? Now, that's tough love right there. Jesus is a demanding teacher for those who present themselves to him as teachers. I mean, Jesus thinks, get this, that Nicodemus should have grasped the significance of all the washings and purifications in the Old Testament. It's as if he's saying to Nicodemus, have you never read Ezekiel 36? (laughs) He should have grasped Ezekiel 36. Do you not know the law and the prophets? What do you mean you don't understand what I'm saying? He should have grasped from Ezekiel 37 the vision of the wind or the breath of God quickening the valley of dry bones showing you that Israel needs to undergo death and resurrection and be itself born again from the dead. It's as if Jesus is saying, hey Nicodemus, I'm not making this stuff up. It's not new. You should have understood salvation through the water of Noah's flood and through the water of the Red Sea crossing and through the waters of the Jordan going into Canaan. So in verse 11, Jesus assures him, as if he needs to know this at this point, that he's not offering a rabbinical opinion. Jesus doesn't speculate, and he doesn't cite or footnote authorities. He says this, we speak of what we know. We testify to what we've seen. He speaks with absolute authority. He's heard it in the council of the Holy Trinity as the Son of the Father. 
And he says to Nicodemus, and by the way, you, Nicodemus, and your colleagues, you don't receive our testimony. So your ignorance here is culpable ignorance, and the conversation now is about the depths of Nicodemus' soul. Remember, Nicodemus started the conversation with, hey, you do a lot of nice miracles. Maybe you're from God. Now the conversation is about the state of Nicodemus' soul. And then finally, Jesus has one more biting remark for this guy. It's this. If I've spoken to you earthly things, and you can't understand them, how are you going to understand when I start to unfold heavenly things? Apparently, this current discourse, confusing as it is for Nicodemus, is, in Jesus' mind, earthly. Simple. Basic. Possibly Jesus is thinking about, you know, I'm using earthly analogies here. Birth, being born again. I'm doing the best I can here. I'm giving you earthly stuff. You can't even understand the earthly stuff. What are you, you going to do when I start to talk about the heavenly things, unpacking the mystery of the kingdom? It's quite a way to, to end a conversation with an inquirer who's sympathetic. But you know what? Jesus is a master teacher because this provocative dialogue must have borne fruit because he becomes a disciple. He disappears, but then he reappears after the crucifixion with 75 pounds of spices to come and bury Jesus' body. So the Spirit indeed worked with Jesus' word to beget Nicodemus himself from above. He becomes a living example of what it means to be born again. So that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And he must do that same work in you for you to be saved. And the second point is the work of the Son. Again, I I spoke about the order of the text. What what does the Spirit do? The Spirit, uh, one of my teachers used to say, had this lovely phrase that the Spirit is the transparent person of the Holy Trinity, meaning you see through the Spirit the Spirit does not draw attention to itself, himself, right? but the Spirit points to and glorifies and presents Christ. And that's exactly what happens in this text. So the text moves from the work of the Spirit to the work of the Son, and Jesus does that in verse 13. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, even the Son of Man. It's also somewhat a bewildering statement. Uh, but I don't think Jesus' point is that he's already ascended, because he hasn't already ascended. His point is, my origin is heavenly. Just like you have to have the spirit from above, the sun comes from above. And and thus, as such, Jesus is saying, I have access, Nicodemus, to all of these mysteries, which you find so baffling. No one but me has the authority to speak on these things. And he says, I've descended to reveal the kingdom as the son of man. He he refers to himself as the son of man. You'll notice if you read through the gospels, this is Jesus's favorite self-designation, son of man. And he shifts the text now to his own work. Right? Remember the second century father Irenaeus says, God the father works in the world to, to create the world, to preserve the world, and to save the world through his two hands. The father has two hands, the son and the spirit. I mean, that's Trinitarian, Trinitarianism at its most basic, but it's a profound insight. Right? The two hands of the Father are at work together. And so Jesus makes an allusion in verse 14 
to Numbers 21. Many of you know this story, right? The Israelites were bitten by serpents. God tells Moses to make a a serpent of bronze and set it up on a pole. And whoever looked to the serpent was healed. And Jesus says, that's a picture of my atoning work. Just as, he says, right, just as Moses lifted up the serpent or the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. This is a reference to Jesus being lifted up first on the cross. And John lifted up is somewhat ironic. He's lifted up on the cross. In John 12, he says this, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. You might think that that's speaking of the ascension. But John, right there in his gospel, John himself comments and says this, This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Jesus' death is his lifting up. And through that death, he ascends to heavenly glory first by ascending to the cross. And so he tells Nicodemus, Whoever believes on this lifted up Son of Man will have everlasting life. The Spirit leads you to Christ. Trinitarian life is found in union with the crucified Christ and nowhere else. Another way to get at this, which we've said here, which I think is helpful, is Jesus cracks the mystery of the Trinity open for us. Or, let's put it this way, to be Christ-centered is to be Trinitarian. And to be Trinitarian is to be Christ-centered. These things are not competing with each other, right? Jesus is saying this is the way to the triune life of God. It's in union with Christ crucified. So there's no no mysterious being born from above by the Spirit without the perfect life and without the atoning death of our Savior Jesus Christ. The Spirit who gives you rebirth is the Spirit of the crucified and raised Jesus. Jesus. The Spirit of Christ, the Spirit sent by the glorified Son. The Son is lifted up, the Spirit descends. So we need to stitch these things together in our mind to become more self-consciously Trinitarian. And finally, in verse 16, famous verse, everybody should know this verse, we see that all of this, right, the atoning work of the Son the quickening work of the Spirit, all of it flows or it stems from the great love of the Father. The use of God here without any qualification refers to God the Father. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. See, that's a reference to the Father-Son relationship in the triune life as he is in himself, right? the eternal relation of love between the Father and the Son, but that now is cracked open and becomes gift. He gave His only begotten Son. Before your rebirth in the Spirit and before the atoning work of Christ is the magnificent love of the Father for His only begotten Son. Right, The one the creed tells us is begotten of the Father before all worlds, begotten not made. Now, we've already looked at this a little, but we see it here, touching down in your salvation. This love, which God is, right, not has. Again, remember, we're not talking about God being loving. We're talking about God being love. This love, which God 
is, is a love which gives. It is the nature of the Trinitarian love to give itself away freely and profusely, prodigally, in no proportion or symmetry to your sins or your deserts. The Trinity is a communion of love, and out of that communion, the Father sends the Son in the Spirit, and you are saved. And this gift is given, John tells us, Jesus tells us here in John 3, because God so loved, right? Not just loved, but so loved. So loved the world. God loves the world. Right? The whole glorious mangled spectacle of men and women and children and things. And he has demonstrated that love. He's demonstrated the extent of his love in Jesus. I've mentioned it before, but I'll mention it again. One of my favorite texts is Romans 5, where, where it uses the present tense. And it says, God demonstrates, demonstrates present tense, his love for us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So that the death of Jesus 2,000 years ago for you is God's present tense demonstration of his love for you. Notice, Paul doesn't say God demonstrated his love for you because he sent the son to die. He said God is present tense demonstrating his love for you in the atoning death of his son. God loves the world. He loves sinners. Which is good, because that's all he's got to work with. He loves sinners. He does not abandon the creation. He intends to remake the world. Bring forth a new heavens and a new earth. Verse 17 makes this clear. For, For God the Father didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Right? It's the Father's purpose. You know, there, let me put it another way. There's no, one, one of the things that the doctrine of the Trinity helps us to see is there's no yin and yang in God. Like, you know, he's got a dark side. and Maybe does he hate the world? Does he just want to judge the world? No. Whatever you want to say about judgment or the condemnation of those who don't believe, Calvin says it's, it's the incidental thing. It's a second-order thing. God's funda- God fundamentally is light. No darkness. He fundamentally is love. There is no hatred in God. There is no malice in God. He is love. He loves the world. His fundamental desire is the salvation of sinners. Right? That's his purpose. And this new creation has already begun in you who are born from above by the Spirit. The kingdom which is coming has already come in the Spirit in your life. So to, to conclude... The Father, in infinite love, gives the Son. The Son, in unspeakable agony, is lifted up on the cross, and we who look to him in faith are gloriously born from above, resurrected by the Spirit, the wind and breath of God. Luther, who I mentioned at the outset, called this text the gospel in miniature. And it's a fully Trinitarian gospel that's revealed here. Your salvation is the mighty work of the life and love of the one undivided God, the Holy Trinity, the love that sends, and the love that having sent 
atones. And the love that having atoned quickens or regenerates from above. And thus the Trinity, in his own fullness and glory, the triune God is the fountain of your salvation. The wellspring, the overflowing fount of redemption. Praise this God from whom all saving blessings flow. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.